When you are watching me, you can turn to Luke chapter 23 in the Bible, page 748. We're going to begin reading in verse 38 in just a moment. Do you want to just reiterate, it'd be super if you could invite others to our three services in the coming week. And just know that all the work that we will put into this, time, energy, effort, um, it's all worth it. Because Jesus Christ is risen. So we just keep that in mind through the week. Verse 38. There was a written notice above him. This is Christ on his cross, which read, This is the king of the Jews. One of the criminals who hung there hurled insults at him. Aren't you the Christ? Save yourself and us. But the other criminal rebuked him. Don't you fear God, he said, since you who are under the same sentence, we are punished justly, for we are getting what our deeds deserve. But this man has done nothing wrong. Then he said, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. Jesus answered him, I tell you the truth, today you will be with me in paradise. Thanks be to God for his word. Let's bow together and pray, please. God and Father, as we turn now to your holy word, we find ourselves in all kinds of ways in need of your help. We who are the weak and frail creatures of time bow now to you, the everlasting God. We who are prone to fainting and to weariness bow before the one who does not faint or grow weary. We, God, who are limited in our thinking, bow now before you, the infinite God, whose understanding exceeds our ability to fully grasp. For we can never fully plumb the depths of your love, your holiness, and your mind. And so, Father, we thank you that you are the God of grace who renews the strength of those who are weak who lifts up the fallen and comes to the rescues of those in trouble and offers forgiveness to those of us who find ourselves in need. And you are the God of grace who sends the prideful away empty. These verses before us constrain us to your instruction. We are utterly and entirely dependent on you right now. So we would please ask right now that you would help us to listen and to speak and to consider and to believe. So it is to you and only you we look. In the name of Christ and for his sake, we pray these things. Amen. Horatius Bonar, 1845, said, All that I was, my sin, my guilt, my death was all my own. All that I am, I owe to thee, my gracious God alone. The evil of my former state was mine and only mine. The good in which I now rejoice is thine and only thine. All that I am ever here on earth, all that I hope to be, when Jesus comes and glory dawns, I owe it, Lord, to thee. Horatius Bonar, 1845. Now, he was born in Edinburgh, Scotland. He was part of the 8th 
generation of ministers in his family who served over 360 years the Church of Scotland. He was a pastor. He was widely known for, for well over four decades. He preached his last sermon in the spring of 1889 and then died that summer. He was married to, I think, a lovely woman whose name was Jane. Their marriage, their life was marked by much personal suffering. Let me just give you one example. Their first five children each died. Each died at a very young age and each died sadly in succession. Toward the end of his life, one of his surviving daughters was left a widow with five small children and she had to return home to live. And Horatius lived the last 13 years of his life without his wife, Jane, who died in 1876. So he, who in his lifetime wrote over 600 hymns, thousands of sermons preached, a number of books written, one of which is Words to Winners of Lost Souls, which I'm going to read this week. It's just a short little book. It was said of him that he was a man of sorrow and familiar with suffering. But one did not find in his preaching or in his writing or in his countenance a hint of rage against God for these things. Near the end of his life, you would often find him saying, Upon a life I did not live, upon a death I did not die, another's life, another's death, I stake my whole eternity. Isn't that beautiful? Upon a life I did not live, upon a death I did not die, another's life, Jesus, another, another's death, Jesus, I stake my whole eternity. Now, in the verses before us, we have two guilty men, two robbers or thieves hanging on a cross, one to the left and one to the right of the man in the middle, the God-man, the Lord Jesus Christ. For each of them, death is eminent. Death is eminent for all of us here. The two robbers are going to show us that there are two kinds of responses then to personal suffering in the presence of Christ. That's the title of our talk. Two kinds of responses to personal suffering in the presence of Christ. Number one, this is our first heading. We can murmur. We can protest against God and tell him, if you're such a great and powerful God, then get me out of being underneath all these miseries. This is not fair, God, and I don't deserve this. Take me out of this and take me out now. And God, there are people out there that are many more times wickeder than I am. What is going on here, God? That's one way. If it sounds wrong, it is because it is wrong. The second way, we can be painfully biblical but truthful and acknowledge that we are sinners and don't deserve anything good, and then cry out for mercy and help in our time of desperation, genuinely believing we deserve nothing, so all that we can ask for at the end of the day is mercy. And I would suggest to you this morning that this world is full of those who protest and murmur against God and their self-righteousness and presume that the creator of the universe is under some kind of obligation to make our lives always only smooth. Which is a good question for Christians to ask. In our conversion, did we come to Jesus only because you heard somewhere that he can make your life smooth? And he'll give you constant, perpetual smooth, comfort, ease, smoother, far smoother than the rest of us poor saps who don't know better. 
Because I want you to know it is a strange and it is a terrible and unbiblical perversion of the gospel to say, Jesus suffered for me, therefore I do, know, I do not have to suffer. That he endured suffering that I might enjoy and aim for perpetual smoothness this side of heaven. Only then to be agitated at him when the smoothness leaves. So we work for smoothness, we pray for smoothness, and we read books about the smooth life, and then providence comes in, God's providence comes in, and for loving, wise reasons, takes away the smoothness. 1 Peter 4.12 Dear friends, do not be surprised at the fiery ordeal that has come on you to test you. In other words, to take away your smoothness, as though something strange were happening to you. Nevertheless, the, the world is full of those who rail against God and this kind of self-righteous railing. I deserve better than this because of whatever. But there are only a few who own up to the fact that God owes us nothing and that any good that comes our way is as a result of His mercy and not our merit. To be in Christ means just that. It means that all we have is only because of the grace of God displayed in the death of Christ for our sin, for the Christian. And all the privileges we enjoy are not earned but given graces, given graces. And to whom much is given, much is required. And then all the common grace God gives to both believers and unbelievers, all the air that we breathe and the light that we enjoy and our heartbeat and food, they all come from God for free. And as we listen to these men speaking, hanging on their crosses, there's going to be a lesson given to us from God concerning the way these two men on these crosses respond to suffering, personal suffering in the presence of Christ. So let's look, first of all, how the men are similar. Well, both, as we said, are suffering the pain of crucifixion. For both of them, death is very near. Both are sinners guilty of crimes. Verse 41, we are getting what our deeds deserve. Both see the sign over the Lord's head. You can see that in verse 38. King of the Jews. Their, their conversation with Christ bears this out, that they saw the sign. Verse 34. They both hear the words from his mouth. Father, forgive them. They do not know what they are doing. And both, on some level, want to be saved from death. That's how they are alike. Sinners who are guilty, who are dying because of their sin, and they want to escape death. The loved ones, that is humanity being represented here. Sinners who are guilty that cannot stop the clock of time. Remember that? I think I had to memorize this poem in junior high. The clock of life is wound but once and no man has the power to tell just when the hands will stop at late or early hour. Why was the clock even wound in the first place? It was because of sin. So in these two men and their similarities, all humanity is being represented here. And now, the way that they respond to this, that is where the division comes. So, you have two criminals, you have two categories of people, two ways to live. There's only two ways to live, we know that. So, the first thief, he says, verse 39, aren't you the Christ? Save yourself and us. And what this is, this is a picture of spiritual destitution. Because the fact that he's guilty and he's suffering justly, for his crimes is a matter of total indifference to this man. His conscience is shot. To him, right and wrong and truth and lie and praise and blame and good and bad, they mean nothing. You're not going to get out of this guy, I am sorry. 
What matters to him all is saving his life. Consequently, he might really believe Jesus is the Messiah, the King of the Jews, and he might go to him. But that is only of a matter of convenience for him. He'll take any kind of king, as long as that any kind of king can just save him from this cross, making things smooth. In other words, Jesus is just another tool to save the thief from his sorry state and to serve this thief's own sorry purposes. Which is why this thief, in actual reality, represents many individuals who relate to God on this level. And so suffering comes, their smoothness is interrupted, their private world begins to ripple, their private world is intruded on by suffering, their worldly goals and worldly pleasures are intruded on, so they say, hey God, or why not try God? And something like this, they might say, okay, God, I heard about you and I heard about your power. And if you're the king, then get me out of this mess. One of my sources said, this is the car jack theology. I'm going to quote from them. A car jack is dusty and old and you don't take it out until you get a flat tire, i.e. suffering. Then you get out the old jack and let the old jack do its work. The jack does its work. Then it's easy peasy, Japanesey. You put the old jack away until the next time. So it's something like this. Hey, Jesus, if you're such a good jack, then jack me down off this cross. Make things smooth, Jesus. If you're such a good jack, then jack me out of this crummy mess and jack me out of this crummy job and jack me out of this crummy marriage or crummy life. And then, Jack, when you're finished, you know the song, right? Hit the road, Jack. And don't come back anymore, anymore until I need you again. And that's the first thief. And that is all those who are like him. There's no spirit of brokenness. There's no sense of guilt. There there is no sense of being of sin because you've opposed God. And there's no sense of I defy the Almighty's authority. So there's no sense of penitence or humility or even kind of like a healthy sense of the fear of the Lord or a sensible sense of the eminent quality of death. Horatius Bonar, who I quoted from before, he said this, And all those of unbelief and self-righteousness, there are only two things, a good opinion of self and a bad opinion of God. So the first thief did not see Jesus as king to be followed, but he kind of saw him as a cabana boy to be used and to be misused. And it never crossed this man's mind to say, I'm sorry, and that I'm wrong, and that I need to change, and that I need to wake up because death is crouching at the door of my life. And so Jesus says nothing to him, which is always in the New Testament a horrible judgment. On some level, Pilate, Herod, and the Sanhedrin all fell under that same judgment when Jesus was silenced in most of their questioning. And that's the first thief. I I hope that's none of us here, full bent. A total indifference to God's revealed will. But if it is, and and I hope that you're here, let God show you this morning from his word out of this mess. And that takes us right to our second thief. And this is the kind of response that is necessary for a person to be made right with a holy God. I want you to get that. This is the kind of response. These things we're going to work through, these seven things you can see in the back of your worship folder there, These are the kind of responses necessary for a person to be made right by a holy God. First of all, then, 
Our second thief isn't sucked in and isn't jumping on the bandwagon of the other thief's railings. He does not find in himself here that he has the ability to say, Yeah, Jesus, if you're such a great and powerful king, save us. He won't get dragged into that kind of thinking. No, the first thing the repentant thief does is not get deceived by that kind of thought talk. Instead, and, and by the way, this is really helpful as you talk to people and they say to you, if God is so great and powerful, why doesn't he do whatever? You should answer the way verse 40 reads. He rebukes him. You're wrong. It's a sharp word. And says, don't you fear God? Which is the second thing about this second thief. He feared God. God was now very, very real to him. God was his maker. And so the thief finally knew his place. You want to say, and just to intrude for a moment, don't let death be the catalyst to make us fear God. Don't. Let Let it be right now. This is sensible and this is the best thing for us. Because I want you to know that it's very, very hard for people like me and you to know our place, to know the place that we're not. Because I think by nature, we want our place to be the place second to no one. By nature, we do not like to bow to anyone, let alone God by nature. But it becomes very, very fitting that as dependent creatures who depend on God for everything to bow in submission to their much-needed creator. And so it's very, very fitting for creatures to subject their whole life to the creator's wisdom and to his revealed will in the scriptures. And it is even more fitting that sinful creatures bow before their maker in holy, reverential awe instead of railing against their maker and demand that you fix that and you do that and get this right because I want things smooth again. Thirdly, the penitent thief admitted that he had done wrong. Verse 41a, we are punished justly. So this is a very liberating moment for him. His desire to save face was gone. He had no will to throw himself out there as something worthy to be rescued. Fourth verse, first line, just as I am. Just as I am, poor, wretched, blind. It's not very flattering, but it is very true. That's what we are apart from Christ. So there's no way to hide his guilt. He understands it. And so he just lays himself flat bare before the eyes of him to everyone must give an account. Now, in our home, in our home, discipline is greatly, greatly reduced when confessions are quick and clean and sincere. Because my wife and I are convinced as we study the scriptures that a clean confession is hard to do. It's very hard for human beings to admit that they're wrong. We can, and especially as we get older, we can justify ourselves out of the need to repent. We can make excuses. We can create a concoction of a story. You know, you try to connect the dots. They never be, are pointed to us. Or worse, if someone has, you know, a mighty ego, just, I dare you to tell me I'm wrong. However, the penitent thief Instead of doing all those things, he just lays down his self-righteous defense. He doesn't blame others. He doesn't try to distort the picture. He just gives up. And he says it like it truly is. I am receiving what I am due by hanging on this tree. 
Fourthly, number one, he didn't get sicked in in the railing against God. Number two, he feared God. Number three, he admitted he did the wrong thing. Fourthly, he accepted his punishment. Verse 41b, we are getting what our deeds deserve. And that is the real test of suffering in the presence of Jesus Christ. And that is the real test of humility in the presence of Jesus Christ. Many people can mouth the confession, God be merciful to me, a sinner. But when the trials come, they immediately get angry at God. And our anger simply reveals that deep down we really do not feel undeserving before a holy God. There are so, so few people like Job who in the place of suffering on the first go says... Naked I came from my mother's womb, and naked shall I return. The Lord gives, and the Lord takes away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. Or, when he said in Job 13, 15, Though he slay me, though he slay me, yet will I hope in him. But in the last minutes of his life, the penitent thief becomes much like Job. He took his suffering without complaint. He revered God and he began to entrust himself, just like Jesus, 1 Peter, he began to entrust himself to the one who judges justly. Fifthly, the thief acknowledges Jesus' righteousness, verse 41c, but this man has done nothing wrong. Now I want you to see this. It didn't make a speck of difference to the first thief whether Jesus was guilty or not. He just wanted down. So the first thief didn't think Jesus through. It's very important that we understand that. The first thief did not think Jesus through. He just wanted to be saved from physical death. He just wanted to be saved from what he deserved. He just wanted to be saved for now. How how short-sighted of this thief. All you want is to be saved for now? Remember what James said about the now? The now is like a vapor. It's a vapor. Short-sighted the first thief was. He didn't care about his sin. He just wanted to attach himself to Jesus because he heard somewhere that Jesus can make him smooth and make life smooth. But Jesus' righteousness matters to Jesus. It matters to his gospel. It matters to his Father in heaven. And if you belong to Jesus, we need a righteous Jesus to save us. And so the penitent thief says very plainly, Jesus has done nothing wrong. And just so we're all on the same page, Jesus will never, ever do anything wrong. And anything that comes to us by our fatherly hand will never be wrong in the long haul. And so no matter how difficult it is to hear and obey the words of Jesus, Jesus is always right because Jesus is fully righteous. That's why we need his righteousness day by day. Sixth, The thief goes a step further and admits that Jesus is king. Verse 42, remember me when you come into your kingdom. Remember the placard over the cross was was a spite, was spite. It wasn't sincere, it was spite. And God's economy takes the spite and makes it right. Verse 42, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And that is a grace of God in a very mysterious form, I think. I want you to think here. Jesus is hanging on the cross and he's bleeding, and his face is disfigured, and he's, he's just mush. That's Isaiah fifty two fourteen. His appearance was so disfigured beyond that of any human being, and his form marred beyond human likeness. And even in all that, and I'm not trying to be irreverent, but even in all that mush of a man, he has the marks of a king. He has the marks of a king for those who have eyes to see. 
And so Jesus has power even on the cross, a power of love that dominates him over all his oppressors. Because Jesus is king then and Jesus is king right now. Jesus is king right now. And so the man looks to Jesus and admits the truth. And finally then, not finally, finally, but finally under this heading, the penitent thief does one last thing. He fears God. He admits his wrong. He accepts justice. He acknowledges the goodness and power of Jesus. And now he pleads for help. Jesus, verse 42, remember me when you come into your kingdom. Now, loved ones, this is deep reverence. This is deep repentance. This is deep humility. This is deep faith. This is a spirit of worship, a concern for the right. I am getting what I deserve, but after death, Jesus, after death, remember me. Now, I want you to know this. Both thieves wanted to be saved from death some way, but oh, how differently they sought their salvation. One guy was all man-setter. Now, now, now not even thinking past death. The other man, all God-centered, all then, then, then. And he knew he was deserving of death. So he was seeking all his solace when. When when did he want things to get smooth? After he dies. In a place called heaven, which is forever and ever. In other words, he wanted his best life, not now, but then. Then. One guy was, are you not the Christ? Are you not the Messiah? With all your power and all your might, would you just snap out of it then and save yourself and us and come down from the cross? The other, Jesus, whom I fear, I know you as king. I know I'm deserving what I'm getting. My punishment is right. Will you have mercy on me? Will you have mercy on me and remember me when you come into your kingdom? You see, beloved, there is an infinite difference between save me And please save me. I was thinking this week, what missionary, what Christian hasn't looked at the work of taking the gospel to people like the first thief and the second thief and say, this is impossible. How can can dead people be awakened in their sins and be made alive by just mere men? And so we have to take a deep breath And hear the words of our king. And what does Jesus say? I think Jesus would say this. This is the paraphrase. Right you are. With man it is impossible. But with me, with God, by golly, it's normal. So the first thief, as we said, gets not a word from Jesus. The second thief, the penitent thief, he gets only a sentence. But what a sentence it is. And there it is in verse 43. Today you'll be with me in paradise. Which is is very kind and, and gracious of Jesus. There's no holding period here, right? You didn't hear Jesus saying, let's see if you really mean it, because after all, you're a criminal. He just says, today, you're going to die, and today, you're going to wake up with me in paradise. Two important words. Word number one, today. Word number two, paradise. The word today, when Jesus said it, is a mercy. What do we know about crucifixions? Well, typically, it took a long, long time for the person to die by crucifixion. In most cases, it took days. Listen to an historian, an expert on this. His name is Seneca. Can can anyone be found who would prefer wasting away in pain, dying limb by limb, or losing out his life drop by drop, rather than expiring once for all? 
Can any man be found willing to be fastened to the accursed tree, long, sickly, already deformed, swelling with ugly wounds on shoulders and chest, and drawing the breath of life amid, amid long, drawn-out agony? He would have many excuses for dying, even before mounting the cross. So Jesus was merciful. As soon as the thief asked for mercy, he received mercy. It wasn't going to be this kind of death. It was going to be this kind of death. Today, today, you'll be with me. Second word, paradise. Well, what's paradise? Two times in the New Testament, the word's used. First time, 1 Corinthians 12, 3, where Paul speaks in the third person about the third heaven, a place Paul called paradise. So we know that paradise is the heavenly place of God, where there are found things prepared by God for those who love God, 1 Corinthians 2, 9, which are absolutely indescribable. So don't even try it. The second place we find the word paradise is found in Revelation 2, 7, where Jesus says to the church, To him who conquers, I will grant to eat of the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. So what do you do? Well, you let Scripture interpret Scripture. You read through all of Revelation till you get to the very end. Chapter 22, verse 1, John writes, Then the angel showed me the river of the water of life as clear as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb down the middle of the great city, streets of the city. One on each side of the river stood the tree of life, bearing crops of fruit. So the tree of life is in the heavenly city where the throne of God abides and the Lamb abides, which is a place Jesus named paradise. So the penitent man moved from death to life, from death to life, from cross to paradise. Why? Why did he go from death to life, from cross to paradise? Because the man in the middle cross said he could. The man in the middle cross said he could. Because the man in the middle cross came. He died on that middle cross to drink the cup of God's full wrath on our sin so that the door could be open. The only way that it could be open and God would swing open that door and everyone that belongs to God could just happily walk into it. So this penitent man became to the end of himself, was honest about his true condition. He feared God. He admitted he was wrong. He accepts the justice. He deals with it. He acknowledges the goodness and power of Jesus and he pleads for mercy because he knew that is all he deserved. But he got it. He got it. Now, this is what I want you to know. We're getting to an end here. This is an historical account of a penitent thief on the cross. But these are the normal steps of a man or woman to come to Jesus Christ. But not only that, this is the normal activity of genuine Christians who find themselves in sin. Isn't this right? Isn't this true? When we sin, when we are awakened by those ugly realities, how are we awakened by those ugly, ugly realities? Do we just wake ourselves up or no? Is it the human conscience that God himself created? Is it the Holy Spirit who is in us, aliving us to our wrongs? Is it the word read and the word preached and the word taught? We are exposed We are exposed and we come to the end of ourselves. And it should be a terrifying, humbling moment when we see full tilt what sin has done. And what God does is a grace. He melts away our self-righteousness. He melts away all our clever justifications. They are exposed as weak and pitiful arguments by an all-knowing, all-seeing God. 
and all those things as they should just vaporize, we are left with nothing but honesty about our true condition. Uh, We don't come out of that situation looking like Superman or Superwoman as Christians. So we begin to fear God, not as a terrified fugitive, but as a contrite child who wants to please their father and know that they have not. We confess our wrongs, right? If you're like me, you confess your wrongs every day. Because Jesus is king, and the king said, when you pray, say you're sorry. And so we say our sorry, and we ask for forgiveness, and the forgiveness comes. And while all that is happening, we acknowledge that it's only the goodness and power of Jesus that is able for my, my wrong to be forgiven. So what do I have to do? Well, I have to acknowledge his death on that cross makes it possible for me to be forgiven. And that should be a very sobering moment. Someone had to die. God had to die so that I could be forgiven. And then after that, I plead for his help. I want to live a holy life. Will you please in mercy help me? And when that happens, what happens? The gates of paradise are flung open and God takes me by the back of the shirt and just throws me in there. One of my favorite songs, I listen to it like a few times a week. Oh, happy day, oh, happy day when Jesus washed my sins away. And that, that is the privilege of conversion because you know and I know that time doesn't heal sin, does it? Does time heal sin? And it's a wrong thing. It's scandalous to think that a good deed can pay the debt for a bad sin. Could that happen? Not on this end. It is only because Jesus Christ, only because of Christ, our sin, not the part but the whole, has been nailed to the cross and we bear it no more. Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord, O my soul. And that kind of happens when we seek the forgiveness that we need. And like I told you, that moment for me is every day. And it's a beautiful moment. Every day, Jesus grabs me by the back of the shirt and flings me into paradise. And while he's throwing me, I'm always saying, are you sure you want to do this? Are you sure you want to forgive me again, Jesus? Let not conscience make you linger. Not on a fitness fondly dream. All the fitness God requires is to feel your need of him. And loved ones, if you're listening still, that is a most blessed paradox, is it not? The sin that I, that we must violently oppose, even when it catches us and God forgives, he turns it into a grace because of Calvary's cross that sends me to my knees, to my maker, to my savior, with a conversation that I have in much need of. Now that's just for Christians. Now what if you're here and you're not a Christian? In fact, what if you're here and you're saying something like this, I'm more like the first thief My life is a wreck, and I don't care how it stops. I just want it to stop. I don't care how it stops. I just want all this mess to stop. I want you to listen carefully. You need to care how Jesus can stop it. Because Jesus said the road to him is very, very narrow. There's not a lot of wiggle room. This is what you need to do right now. First of all, you need to come to the end of yourself. You need to be honest about your true condition. Don't try to hide it. Be truthful about it. Fear God. Ask your wrath-bearing God that gives you only two choices. These are your two choices. Surrender to him in repentance and faith and live or be eternally condemned in a place the Bible calls hell and live in death without God forever. Now, if you choose the latter, then admit you're wrong. 
Believe what you actually deserve is what you actually deserve. Because I want you to know this, and I can guarantee this, and I say this with love, and I say this with humility. There is going to be a moment in your life, it's going to be a terrifying, humbling moment, when when in your unconverted state, you will see and feel what it means to stand before a holy God in your sin. And all your self-righteous confidence will just wilt before God. And all the clever justifications that you've, you know, have served you for a time will no longer serve you. And they'll be exposed as weak, pitiful arguments before the all-knowing God. And all your false gods and false religious notions, which, which you thought were really good, will turn on you. And they will appear to you then at that moment as a wretched enemy who you always thought were your friends. And the, and the smooth life, the good life that you long for and that you'd do just about anything for, that's going to be exposed as a cruel hoax. And you're going to be feeling very, very duped. In the day of prosperity, we have many shelters. But in the day of adversity, we have only one. And on that day, before you die... This is what you need to do. You need to acknowledge the goodness and the power of Jesus. Acknowledge the Son of God loves you and gave himself up for you. And then you're going to need to plead for his help. And then you're going to need to plead for his mercy. And this is what Jesus will say to you. He will say something like this. I am the bread of life. And whoever comes to me will never go hungry. And whoever believes in me will never be thirsty. And whoever comes to me, I will never drive away. For my Father's will is that everyone who looks to the Son and believes in the Son shall have eternal life. And I will raise them up at the last day. And let the record show Jesus Christ of Nazareth has never ever failed in any of his promises, including the one that I just read. So this morning, if you hear God's voice, please... Please, 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 do not harden your heart. Let's bow together and pray. Our gracious God and Father, we thank you for the truth and reality of your word. Thank you, God, that the safest place for humanity is on their knees before a holy God safest words we could say is, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. And the best result that will come out of that occasion when it is true and genuine is that we will be brought safely forever in a place your son called paradise. Father, what is true of the second thief? Make it true for all of us here. Make it true for many people on Friday and Sunday coming. Make it true for everyone who will listen to this uh, sermon, whether by um, given by a friend or just on the web. Do what no man can do, Father, and save souls. Now may the love of God and the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be our abiding portion both this morning and every morning. For Jesus' sake.